ecstatically happy today? Anyone? A few. Good. That's exciting. How many of you are really miserable today? Can't even be bothered to lift up your hand. Oh, the rest of you. Okay. Well, so if you're really miserable, find one of those people who's ecstatically happy and get with them because uh, it's good just to hang out with ecstatically happy people sometimes, isn't it? Just to, to let it rub, rub off on you a little bit and to absorb some of that happiness and that joy. Seriously, if you, if you are struggling, get with someone who just is full of joy today. Because yeah, sometimes we are full of gratitude and just full of joy, and sometimes it feels as if the wheels have fallen off, doesn't it? As if you're going along a particular route, driving along in your car, and suddenly all the wheels have dropped off and you're not going anywhere. You may not have had that physically, maybe a wheel occasionally, but in life sometimes it feels as if something happens and we're just taken by surprise. And it can be a real struggle. And I want to look at a passage today in Luke's Gospel, which is Luke chapter 4. Um, it's going to look at some challenging times and how we can respond to those and see what happens when maybe all the wheels fall off or maybe there's a struggle or maybe there's a trial. How do we respond in that time? What do we do? How do we cope? And we're going to see that actually we can find a way through with God that's sometimes different to what we expect. And sometimes we're going to, we're going to see today that sometimes we ask the wrong questions of ourselves and of God when we're going through challenging times. So we're going to turn to Luke 4. And it's the story of Jesus being tempted. But I actually want to take it on a little bit to the next story as well. So if you've got a Bible, it's Luke chapter 4. In your, again, your app, your Bible, whatever you might be using. I'm going to read it through. If you've not got one of those in front of you, just listen. I haven't got the words on the screen. There's too many put up there today. But just have a listen. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue 
were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It's a long reading. I think Luke has put these two stories side by side for us on purpose. Because testing and trial and and challenge comes together. And I think we can see a a thread running through this today of how Jesus responds that I think we'll find really helpful. I trust it will anyway. Firstly, I want us to see this from from the whole of this story, that being in the center of God's will doesn't exempt us from tough times. Being in the center of God's will doesn't exempt us from tough times. This story starts, Jesus in the wilderness, it starts uh, a little bit before this in in Luke's gospel with a list of names, but the other side of that list of names, Jesus has just got baptized. And the last bit of Jesus' baptism is a voice from heaven, the Father speaking, and God the Father saying, this is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Well pleased. And Luke 4 starts with Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't get any better. The voice of God speaking, this is my son whom I love in whom I'm well pleased. Pleased by, pleased the Father. It's it's exciting. Jesus has a Father who's delighting in him. God the Father is pleased with him. And then the next bit we read, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely saturated and filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Sometimes we can think that because we're going through trials or testing or temptation, it must be because we've been disobedient. We must have got something wrong. We've sinned in some way because these trials have come into our lives. And I want to tell you it's not necessarily true. Jesus had not sinned. He had the the favor of the Father speaking over his life. He was filled with the Spirit, and at that moment, trials come. It's no different when he's preaching in the synagogue, uh, and the the verse at the bottom of the screen references that part, when he's returned to the Galilee, and everyone returns to Nazareth, and everyone loves him to start with, and then they try and throw him off a cliff. At that point, he hasn't sinned either. And he's still loved by the Father, and he's still cherished by the Father, and he's still full of the Spirit, But stuff is coming despite the fact that he's not disobeyed God. Just because you might find yourself going through a set of circumstances which are challenging, it does not automatically mean that you're in a place of sin. Be encouraged. Through the Old Testament, we read of times when 
challenges were brought to the people of Israel. Time after time, God would allow circumstances into their lives and sometimes bring those circumstances to bring them to a place of repentance. Because they'd gone their own way. They'd been living in sin. They'd, they'd turned their back on God. And, and you can read these. And, and people sometimes talk about a, a judgmental God in the Old Testament. And it's, it's not the case. It's usually because we're reading the cry of God for chapter after chapter after chapter, dealing with people who've gone far away. And he's saying, I'm going to send this to you so that you'll repent because I love you. And we miss off the because I love you bit. And we read the first bit quite often just because there's chapter after chapter of it. And we get a bit bogged down. It can seem as though God's really judgmental, but it's the cry of one who loves, saying, come back. And as he issues the call to repentance from a disobedient people, it's out of love. But here, here in this passage, people are going through stuff, and there's nothing to do with their own sin. Sometimes also we can think that we're going through testing and trial because we've gone the wrong way. You know, all of us want to follow God's will. We want to get it right and go the way that God wants us to through life. And we can feel sometimes that when we come up against struggles, we must have made a wrong turn. Because surely it would have been easier than this had we been following God. That's our rationale. I want to tell you it's not always the case. It's not the case. You know, sometimes the hardest times come when you're following God. I remember years ago having a a job that I wasn't particularly enjoying. I remember standing in one particular place in my workplace and saying to God, and in desperation, just, oh, I kind of, well, I know, I'd had months. I'd had months of just feeling frustrated with it. Just thinking, oh, this is hard, not only hard work, but it's just miserable and I'm not enjoying it and why am I here? And kind of month after month going on like this. And I stood in one place and I gave in. And I just caved and I said, God, if you want me here for five years, 10 years, 20 years, I'll do it for you. And everything changed. In the moment. Everything in here changed. Suddenly, uh, the job didn't get better. It was still miserable. But everything changed in here. And, and suddenly, there was just a sense that maybe I'm in the right place after all. That I'm just going to surrender that to God and say, God, it's over to you. And within three months, I'd had an offer of a role that was completely different. And, and took me into the thing that I felt was my calling, my promise. It was into church ministry in a different, it, it, full-time, working for God. It was really exciting. And Wow, God works. But the story carries on. And, and actually, I found it was harder in the new place where it ticks all the boxes and it looked like God's call than it was in the job I didn't like. Harder not because it was worse, but just because stuff happens and you walk through it. And I was in the will of God and following his call but life got tough. And just because life's tough, it doesn't mean you've gone the wrong way. Also, I just want you to look at this passage of Jesus' temptation and then this this time he's nearly thrown off a cliff. Being in the center of God's will doesn't exempt us from tough times and it also isn't necessarily a sign that God's to blame. It isn't a sign that God is to blame. You know, there's Old Testament times where God is bringing things into people's lives to cause them to repent, to bring them back to himself. Almost always his dealings are with a nation. Almost always it's with an entire nation. Occasionally it's with individuals, but usually it's with an entire nation. There are many times when tragedies happen throughout the Old Testament and the New, where there's sickness or death or suffering. And there's no reason given for it. 
There's no explanation. The, the, Jesus references Elijah in this passage, and there's stories from Elijah's time and Elisha's time when things happen and people are hurt and injured and sick and die, and there's no cause given for it. In this, in this very book, Luke's Gospel, Jesus talks about a time, there's been a sort of challenge that's come, and some, some of the people listening to Jesus at this point in Luke 13 are saying, but, but what about these tragedies that are happening? And there's been an awful one where some Galileans have been attacked and killed, and Pilate, as it says, Jesus says, has mixed their blood with their sacrifices. Been, there's been a slaughter that's taken place. And a tower has fallen down and killed some people. And, and people are saying, why? Is it their sin? Is it their sin? And Jesus says, do you think that they sinned worse than them? No. He's pointing out the fact that these things happen, and it isn't God's fault, and it isn't our sin's fault sometimes, and it isn't that we've gone the wrong direction, but sometimes tragedy and trial just happens. And it feels awful to say that, because still deep in our hearts it feels wrong doesn't it? When tragedy comes and trial comes and suffering comes, it feels in, in the pit of our stomach like it's wrong, like an anomaly, like an interruption, like life was going okay and suddenly this has happened and it's just not fair. It's just not right. You know, the truth is this, that often as we're going through life, when we come up against problems, we can fix it ourselves. I think actually we're meant to fix it ourselves. Now these days, if you have a slight dull headache, you go to the bathroom cabinet, you open it up, you take out some paracetamol, you take them and you feel better, usually. Or you go for a lie down, or whatever you do. But you do something for a small, insignificant issue and, and it gets better. If your car doesn't work and if there's a particular problem, you take it to, you either fix it yourself or you take it to someone who can and it's fixed and it's sorted. You don't normally... We don't normally come before God crying out, going, God, I need an oil filter changed. God, the old one's worn out. God, we take it to the garage and they put a new oil filter on and they fill it with oil and they do the job. Take out the old oil first and it's done, sorted. It's not normally a crisis, but, and we cope with it. We don't even reference God. We just get through life on our own, by ourselves, looking after things, fixing problems when they arise, until... We come up against something that we can't fix. Then we go to God. Then we say, God, it's not fair. I was doing all right. I fixed all these little problems, and you didn't keep your side of the deal. Because my job's to fix the little ones. Your job's to fix the big ones. That's how it works. And we come to God, and we say, God, it isn't working. You're not keeping up with the bargain. And I think there's some, an element of truth in why we feel that way because right in the beginning of Genesis Adam and Eve are given a mandate and a call to fill the earth and subdue it. There's a mandate to make a difference on an ongoing basis to represent the Father throughout the whole of creation. There's a mandate to bring transformation and change. I think that's why we fix stuff. I think it's why we're creative and why we put our hands to problems and we make things work. The danger to that is we get so self-reliant that we abandon God and we forget that all of that comes through God in the first place. And actually, we can end up just trusting God with the big stuff and forgetting to trust him with the little stuff. And the clue to seeing God at work in the big thing is to trust him in the little thing too. I'm convinced of that. Not only are we good at fixing things and have a bit of a mandate to do so, 
the fact that we can fix so many things these days, and science is just so exciting and thrilling. There's new technological advances every day. The scientific breakthroughs are just amazing, but it almost insulates us from the fact that the world is still broken. And no matter how advanced our science becomes, and no, no matter how brilliant our technology becomes, it still won't fix the fundamental brokenness at the core of the world that's caused by separation from God and sin. Nothing can fix that apart from Jesus. And so we're trying and trying and advancing and advancing so much and yet and alleviating so much suffering as we should. It's our calling to care. It's our calling to fix suffering when we see it. It's our calling to lay down our lives and give ourselves for those who have nothing. And yet still we will come up short. And yet still we can't fix everything. Because the world still needs a savior to return. A savior to come and bring justice and truth and righteousness for all eternity. We see in this passage... In, in this passage in Luke's Gospel, that being in the center of God's will doesn't exempt us. We also see this from this whole passage, that Jesus walks where we walk. I, I want just, I want, I'm going to get into the temptation in a minute, but I want to just zone out a little, just kind of zoom out a little bit and see the big picture in this whole passage. We're seeing Jesus tempted and we're seeing him tested. We're seeing him with a whole crowd turning against him, trying to throw him off a cliff in a time of trial. We're seeing here that Jesus walks where we walk. He enters in. It wasn't that long ago that we were having Christmas. It seems like a, ages ago, doesn't it? It seems like a whole year away, at least. Not just you know, a few weeks away, but literally a year away. But when we celebrate Christmas, we're remembering Emmanuel, God with us, the one who enters into our world. It's the core message of the Christian gospel. And there's a debate around, theologically, around how much God enters in. How much did Jesus take on our humanity? How much did he become like us? And I want to just tell you, he became like us completely. Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus enters into our world, to our humanity, to our lives, to our suffering, to our tempting, to our trials. He enters into it fully. He identifies with us because he goes through it. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet is without sin or yet did not sin. Tempted in every way. As we're crying out to God sometimes, God, it's not fair. Why am I going through this stuff? We're crying out to one who knows exactly what we're talking about because he entered in. We're not crying out to one who's distant and far off and and immune from suffering. We're crying out to Jesus who entered into our world and who walked through pain and suffering and doubt and Shame, rejection, he walked through everything. All the different types of temptation that are common to us, he was faced with. Also, 
Jesus walked where we walk, and so he becomes for us an example of one who suffers, but also of one who perseveres and of one who trusts the Father through that suffering. So we can follow in his steps. So how do we respond to trial and temptation? How do we respond to these things like Jesus goes through? How do we approach them? Well, the first thing I want to suggest is not to be surprised. You see, life has become broadly okay for many of us much of the time. And it can be a surprise when there's an additional struggle. You see, we cope with stuff. Even if you've got long-term sickness or disability, we cope with it. And so that becomes our new normal. And then it's only when we deviate from the new normal that we go, oh, God, what's happening? Because it's amazing what we can cope with. God has given us the ability to cope with all sorts of stuff, and that's good, but we should only do it in dependence on him. In dependence, not independent of him. So how do we approach it? Well, the first thing is to realize that we will come up against tough times. Jesus promises them. He promises eternal life. He promises salvation. He promises hope and joy and love and peace. But he also promises tough times. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Don't be surprised when the tough times come. Jesus wasn't. You know, I was, I was reading through this passage in Luke 4, and this is a pretty weird story. Jesus actually has an appearance of the devil coming to him. And I notice as I'm reading this, and I realize these are Jesus' words recounted to the disciples that have recorded them, but Jesus doesn't sound surprised that the devil's turning up. There's no sense of shock here. As he goes to the crowd and he's speaking with them and they they go to throw him off a cliff, Jesus doesn't fall apart going, what's happening? He doesn't sound surprised because it's as if he's expecting the trials and the tribulations to come. He's expecting the temptations. And he's not doing it in a morbid way or a negative way. It's not clouding his view He's not becoming an obstacle to faith. He's trusting God, knowing that tough times are going to come, but he's trusting his Father anyway. And some of us, we, we are, most of us, I do this sometimes, we, we have a sense of, God, I'll trust you until it's really tough. And when it's tough, I'll, I'll be surprised by how tough it is, and I'll question whether I should trust you or not. And yet Jesus starts with an expect, two expectations. One, an unflinching confidence in his Father. Two, an expectation of unwavering uh, trial and temptation that's coming his way. And he's not surprised by anything that comes, apart from faith. The only times we see Jesus surprised in the Gospels are when people are exhibiting extraordinary faith. And then he goes, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Words to that effect. I've not seen such faith in the whole of Israel, he says to the centurion. Noting a surprise at an event, but never is he surprised by pain and suffering. Why? Because that's his job. He's come to make a difference. He's come to bring breakthrough. He's come to find a way through for us. So he goes in expecting it. And we go in surprised. So let's have a look at the temptations as we just very quickly look at some detail. The first temptation Put all three of them on the screen. This is Jesus' response to them. The first temptation is that Jesus should turn stones into bread. Turn stones into bread. Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting 40 days. He's tempted by the devil. I think that the first temptation 
is that he's tempted to doubt that God is enough. He's tempted to doubt that God is enough. I, I get that view from looking up the verses that Jesus quotes, because every time there's a temptation, Jesus says, it is written, it is written, or it is said. Three times you've got that there, the, the, the response that Jesus gives, but every time it's a quote from Scripture. And actually every time it's a quote from Deuteronomy. And the first thing that Jesus quotes is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and it says uh, this, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That whole passage is about God's provision for the Israelites. The passage, Jesus is quoting not just a, a phrase, but a passage. He's referencing a, an entire passage, an entire story, and giving it just a snappy answer. Because the entire passage goes on and says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna and so on and so on. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet didn't swell during these 40 years. He's talking about about God's provision for the nation of Israel. He's saying God is the provider for Israel. And that's why God provides manna to teach them that it's not by bread alone that they live, but it's by dependence on the word of God. The word of God, where God says, I will supply, he will. And so this first temptation is this to Jesus. Jesus, it doesn't look as though God's coming through for you. You're going to need to fix this yourself. Why don't you? Why don't you fix it? God's forgotten. He's, God's not coming through for you. You fix it. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not going to live by bread alone because the story I'm going to reference is one where Israel is provided for day after day after day after day. And when they couldn't see what God was doing, he was still providing for them. And it's only when they got to the end that they realized that their shoes hadn't worn out and they hadn't starved. And actually everything they needed had been provided for. And I'm going to carry on trusting God. The second temptation is to doubt in God's plan. This time Jesus, when he's tempted and and the devil says, takes him to a high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I'll give you their authority and splendor. It's been given to me. Jesus doesn't argue with him, doesn't get into a debate, it's not worth it. The devil says, if you worship me, all their authority and their splendor, it'll all be yours. The second temptation is to shortcut God's plan or to lack trust in God's plan. At this point, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 13 which says, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take oaths in his name. Yet again, it's a reference to a bigger story, and the bigger story that's all around that chapter is of a time when people had come into the promised land. Deuteronomy 6, those few verses talk about how people had come into the land where they had provision. They had houses that they, they hadn't built. They had crops that they hadn't raised. They had just all sorts of things that God had provided for them. And then they forgot God. They forgot God. They forgot the one who'd given it all to them. And they ignored him. And that passage goes on to say, fear the Lord or worship the Lord and serve him only. And Jesus is quoting that entire passage again, looking back and saying, God's working things out. He's got a plan. He's got a plan to provide. He's got a plan that I'm working on. And actually, I'm not going to go my own way. 
I'm not going to forget God and forget his plan. I'm not going to question it. I'm going to do things his way. Some of you will have watched the news over the last couple of days and seen the American presidential inauguration. I'm not going to try and make a flippant comment about it uh, or score party political points, but at one point we had the new American president and his wife dancing to My Way. A very fitting song, I thought. But a tragic sentiment. Because if ever there's a time we need people not to do things my way, it's now. Because Jesus at this point, tempted to do things, to shortcut the long-term plan of God, to, to take power now, to take control now, to have the adulation of the world now offered to him by the devil, he says, no, I will not. I will not forget my God. I will worship him only because he has a plan to prosper. He has a plan to work things out. Just as the Israelites were commanded not to forget him, I'm not going to forget him either. Third temptation is to doubt God's character. It's at this point that in the story that the devil seems to be getting a little wise and has noticed the pattern. Temptation, it is written. Temptation, it is written. He goes, ah, it is written. Let's see what Jesus does with this one. So the devil quotes to him a scripture. And he says, throw yourself off this temple because it is written, Psalm 91, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. He's basically saying, chuck yourself off, God will catch you. The psalm doesn't quite say that. The psalm takes it further. Not only is it talking about the times when trouble comes into our life when we haven't gone looking for it, and the devil's trying to get Jesus to go looking for it, it says something slightly different. 91. It says this, and this is, I think, is the core of the temptation. Verse 11, 12, and onwards. So it says exactly the same. He'll command his angels concerning you to guard you in all their ways. They'll lift you up in their hands, so on and so on and so on. Verse 14, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him. What a promise. And I think the devil is quoting a bit of a passage just like Jesus has, but there's more to it than we see. You see, it's actually a fundamental assault on God's love for Jesus. It's a fundamental assault. He's saying, if God really loves you, he'll catch you. If he doesn't love you, he won't. Chuck yourself off, let's see. And there are times when we play a similar thing with God, where we get into situations and God doesn't seem to be hearing our cry and God doesn't seem to be answering and the temptation is to say, okay then God, I'll give it one last shot. You need to, and we were hearing this earlier from Andy, this is my plan, do it my way. And then that will demonstrate to me that you love me. And if you don't do it my way, then you don't love me. God doesn't play our games. It's not because he doesn't love us, but because his plan is better. His way is better. His love is more long-lasting despite our circumstances. This temptation is a fundamental one to doubt God's character. Three temptations. Doubt that God is enough. Doubt God's plan. And doubt God's character. And Jesus replies with the only reply he can give. Do not put the Lord your God, to the test. Again, a quote from Deuteronomy. Again, referring to something bigger, because the verse actually says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. And as you read through the Old Testament story, Massa 
is a shorthand for one place where Israel doubted God and they asked him to, to kind of perform. And again and again and again, Massa crops up. Deuteronomy 9 verse 12, chapter 33 verse 8, Psalm 95 verse 8. It's a place that's referenced as a place of doubting God's character. Again and again and again, Massa crops up. And this temptation to doubt God's character, Jesus swats down. He's saying, even if I don't hear from him, I'm going to trust in his love. And I want you to notice that the father is silent through this chapter. That while the devil is tempting Jesus, when Jesus is on a mountaintop or a hilltop about to be thrown off by the crowd, we don't get a single voice from God. Nothing. It's silent. The glorious encounter that Jesus has with the father where the father's saying, son, I love you, you're mine, I'm well pleased. We don't hear from God in this chapter. And that reflects our own experience, doesn't it? When the times you have with God in private, then when you're somewhere in this trial and this trouble, you think, God, where are you? You spoke to me and I need you now. The truth is this, that God's word is sustaining. The word that God speaks is a continually sustaining word. Jesus is upholding the universe, the Bible says, by the power of his word. It doesn't mean he's keeping speaking just to keep it held up or, you know, just keep it going. Jesus doesn't have to keep saying to the planets to spin around the sun, but his word is sustaining. His word is life-giving and it's life-giving in an ongoing way. And the word that God has given us, sometimes we need to go back to and revisit and say, God, you said that you love me. I'm trusting that word now. In the situations I now find myself in, when I can't hear from you and you seem to be silent, I'm going to go back to the words you once said and I'm going to remind myself of that word and trust you that it is true. Trust you. Because these temptations and these trials come down to one thing. Can we trust in the Father? Can we trust him? Or will we try and sort things out for ourselves? Jesus shows us that we go through tough times, but he also gives us the answer. At the end of this story, and I'll finish with this, the end of this story, we read this, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I love the fact there's no explanation. I don't know how this happened. Not a clue. We don't know if it's miraculous or if people got to the edge and went, oh, perhaps this isn't such a good idea after all, and Jesus just went home. We don't know. But we've got this crowd of people intent on pushing him off a cliff and something happens and he just walks through the crowd and goes on his way. I want to use that illustratively to say whatever is happening right now, whatever trial or temptation or test, it will come to an end. There was a time when the devil left Jesus, it says at the end of the temptations, he left him until an opportune time. Here the crowd stopped trying to push him off the cliff and Jesus goes on his way. Testing and temptation isn't a place that you remain. Ultimately in God, they will all end. It will all go. There will be a day you can walk through the crowd. But that, I want us to get that picture of walking through the crowd in our minds because we've been singing about this earlier. Singing about the God speaking to the waves and speaking in the chaos and speaking in times of trial, referencing Isaiah 43. 
where God says to Israel, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the fire, it will not set you ablaze. Jesus goes through the crowd and he goes on his way. When the trials and the troubles and the temptations are all around us, our calling, as much as we can, with the grace God gives us, with the strength we have, is to keep going on our way and trusting that God is with us. Why? Because Jesus does this. Not because he's just determined. Not because he's got a plan, but because God's got a plan. And the plan is to anoint Jesus, to proclaim good news for the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to recover his sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So no matter what comes, Jesus knows that God has a plan. He knows it's not comfy, but he's holding on to his trust in God. And the last thing he heard, which was to keep going and to bring a deliverance to the captives. What do we do when we're facing trial and temptation? Well, it's so easy to doubt. It's so easy to try and sort it out. And when we can't, we go to God and we say, God, it's your fault. But I want to encourage you today that Jesus promises that he's with us. He promises that in the tough times which will come, he won't forsake us. And he promises us and shows us through this passage that we can go on our way if we're walking in his way. I want to pray for us today that as we do, as we go through all sorts of things in life, we'll be able to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray, shall we?